from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where institutionalized religion meets Jesus Christ face-to-face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. If you're down and lost or misunderstood, if you're alienated, full of evil, confused about the meaning of life, if you are bearing burdens, need direction, want truth that doesn't fail, Go to God. Go to God through Jesus Christ. Ask Him. Even if you don't do it through Jesus Christ initially, go to God. Ask Him straight up to reveal Himself to you. God, show me the way. I'm asking you. And He will. If you wait and you, and you look, He will. He'll give you a new vision. So go to Him. He'll show you the truth. That I can guarantee because he is a good God, a God of love. Last week we got a call from Matt Von B out in California who asked a great question which this idiot did not comprehend. And uh, so he asked, what is the state of people, all the people who died before Jesus came to earth? So I'm going to kind of give a truncated answer here. And I hope that it will help uh, with Matt's question. Everybody before Jesus was born and came and saved the world, when they died, they went to what we would call hell. Everybody. Now, that place was known as Sheol in the Hebrew, which contained a good place, also known as Abraham's bosom, or paradise, and which is translated as a garden, really, and or a prison, a bad place. Paradise or prison, and there's a gulf between those two. Just Now, just like believers today are saved by faith, in the Old Testament, before Jesus came, anyone who had faith in the promises of, that God had given them up to that point, when they died, they went to paradise, the good place, a place of rest. Anyone who did not walk by faith in the revelations of God given to them, they went to prison, um, the prison part of Sheol or hell. When Jesus was born and died and his physical body lay in the tomb, 
We know that he went to the spirits that were in the hell part, the, the prison part of Sheol, and he preached to them. This is what 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20 says. For Christ also has suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Now, there's debate as to whether he just preached to those who were uh, disobedient during the days of Noah, or if he preached to all who were disobedient. We're not going to get into that. We just know that he went when his body was in the grave. We know that the spirit, the soul of Jesus went to prison. I would suggest that Jesus going to the prison part of hell was a fulfillment of prophecy, which in Isaiah 61 uh, 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. This is speaking of Jesus. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, end quote. Got all that? So then when Jesus resurrected and then he ascended into heaven to the Father, it is believed that the paradise part of Sheol, the good part, was taken with him. And those who remained in the prison part remained there waiting for judgment. All right? Now, I would suggest, now other people, they, they suggest we're still waiting for that judgment to occur. And everybody who is put in the, in the bad part of Sheol is still in there waiting for judgment to occur. The way I see it, I would suggest that in 70 AD, when Jesus returned in the clouds with judgment on Israel, uh, he initiated the judgment of the people who were in prison. And hell, according to Revelation, gave up its dead, and those who were in it were then judged at the great white throne, and some names were written in the Lamb's book of life, and others were cast into the lake of fire. So that was the state of all who died before Christ and went to the prison part of Sheol. There's a debate. Are they still there? Uh, but the, the futurists say still there, the judgment hasn't happened. I suggest that at the judgment of uh, Israel with the destruction of Jerusalem, that that is when uh, the captives were set free. They went before the great white throne and judgment began there. Judgment begins at the house of Israel, scripture says. And I believe that's when it occurred. Uh, as an aside, I would suggest that with everything being wrapped up with the house of Israel in 70 AD, including God dealing with those who were in the prison part of hell, that the same thing goes on today when we individually die, but it's kind of like something that's constantly in process. An individual dies, they go to heaven or they go to hell. They go to paradise or they go to prison. After a time in prison, they get out, hell gives up its dead, they stand before the great white throne, they're judged according to the books. If their name's not in it, they go to the lake of fire. If, it's, if their name is in it, they enter into heaven. We're going to get into that eschatology after the week after next. Next week's our last week talking about end times. So I hope that helps 
Brother Matthias, my good friend and brother, I love you. Last week we had a call from Gail in Vernal who suggested that the whole preterist premise fails because the book of Revelation was written, according to her sources, after 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed. She believes it was written between 90 and 95 AD. In response, we received an interesting email from Adnan in the Moreno Valley of California. This is what Adnan writes. Hey, Sean, I wanted to address a question. One of the callers presented you about the book of Revelation being written in 90-ish AD. You responded to her inquiry by saying there's not enough proof that it was written in the 90s and there's not enough proof that it was written in the 50s, 60s, or 70s. I think there is some proof that it was written pre-70 AD and here is the, here is the best proof I've got. In Revelation 13:18, John writes, This calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. If you've seen the Omen movies, you're familiar with that. If you've watched any heavy metal people, you know 666. Well, this is where it comes from. Many Jewish, Christian, and even secular scholars and mathematicians have come to interpret the number 666 as describing the emperor Nero. In other words, John was warning the readers of the evil of Nero that he would bring upon the Jewish Christians. John couldn't use Nero's name in his letter. Okay, he would have been killed by the Romans for doing it. So he used the Jewish numerological system to spell out Nero's imperial name. The Jews reading it could easily calculate, as John puts it, the number 666 and transcribe it as being Caesar Nero. It was a perfect way to warn the Jews about Nero who actually having, uh, without having to use Nero's name, which is important being that John's activity and everybody else's was under Roman scrutiny. Where the Romans could not have deciphered the coded language John used to describe Nero, the Jews could. So what does this have to do with the dating of Revelation? Here you go, Gail. Historians have pretty much accurately dated Nero's reign from October 13th, 54 AD to June 9th, 68 AD. This means that Revelation could not have been written later than 68 AD. Because if Nero is out of practice, John would not warn the people about him later on than after 68 AD. He was out of business. John was warning the early Jewish Christians about the evils to come at Nero's hand. Therefore, to believe that Revelations was written in 90 AD negates the warning and the numerology written by John to warn the early Christians of him. I think this is the most substantial proof that hints when the book of Revelation was written. I think that's a great insight and approach, Adnan, and I want to thank you for taking the time to contribute that knowledge to us, my brother. With that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, uh, we seek you in spirit and in truth. Open our, uh, our minds and our hearts to the things you want us to know. Uh, don't let my words uh, influence, but to inform in the things that are wrong, Lord, Let them be forgotten, completely dismissed as being the words of a man. 
but let your word abide by your spirit. We thank you for those who are here in studio watching on TV, who will watch in the archives, open us up to truth. And we thank you for our volunteers who uh, do so much to keep the ministry going. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we have two more shows tonight, next Tuesday. We're done with When Does the Bible Say Jesus Would Return? We left off where we were answering the, that question. Tonight, I want to try to answer a few of the automatic things that come out of people's mouths when they hear that I believe that Jesus returned in 70 AD. And those automatic things often begin with then, okay? So you believe that Jesus returned in 70 AD? Yeah. Well, then why does the Bible say this or that? Or then what does the Bible mean when it says, or then how do you explain? Or then when was this fulfilled? There's always a, if you believe that then, and then there's a follow-up. Well, the two biggest follow-up questions I get, uh, they relate to three things. I'm going to cover two right now. The first is the millennium. And the second is a reference to the 144,000. This always comes up to people. Well, what about the millennium? Well, what about the 100? Who's the 144,000? And, and so we're going to talk about those tonight. And hopefully I'm going to give you at least the way I believe and many others believe uh, these topics should be addressed. Millions of Christians around the world assume that the doctrine of the millennium has a bunch of support in scripture and is central is a central tenet to the christian faith churches like calvary chapels all over the world have distinctives that state if you're going to be called a calvary chapel you have to accept these distinctive tenets and the millennium and a millennial reign is one of them many church denominations present it's called a dispensational system as the Bible teaching and nothing else is considered acceptable. Dispensationalism, if you're not familiar with it, says that Jesus' return is going to consist of two phases. The first phase is going to be the rapture of the church, and the second phase is going to be the second coming uh, when Christ would return to earth and establish his earthly kingdom for a thousand years, a millennium, okay? Dispensationalists believe that those two parts uh, describe the second coming as a whole, all right? Dozens of Bible teachers, prophecy book authors, end-time devotees have speculated on what this millennium, this thousand years when Jesus is on the earth will look like. I remember being a kid, my mom taking me to the doctor, and then this one doctor, uh, he had these little magazines that were very colorful, and, and I'd open them up and I would see these pictures, these illustrations drawn of these very handsome couples sitting about and lions would be sitting there next to lambs and like they'd be buddies and and everything looked peaceful and beautiful and of course i learned those were uh, magazines by the jehovah's witnesses and the idea of a thousand years of this peaceful reign of christ on earth is really inviting and when you see pictures like that it's even more inviting but when we examine the doctrine of the millennium let's the first thing we have to note that like the Trinity, the word does not appear in scripture. Now, I know, I know, I know 
that there are other words that we use to capture ideas that are in Scripture. For instance, um, omnipotent is a word that we use to capture the idea that God is overall all-powerful. Um, but to use the example of omnipotent, we have a lot of verses that describe God's omnipotence, words like the Almighty and the first and the last and the Lord of hosts. And so we can take those words and we can say, aha, omnipotent is fair to use, okay? So what happens when we look at the term the millennium to get biblical support? The entire case for this idea is found of a literal thousand years of reign of Jesus on earth is found in a seven verse section of the book of Revelation. This is what it says. And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Very descriptive. And he lay hold of the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan and bound him a thousand years and cast him into a bottomless pit and sh into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones and they all sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshiped the beast, neither his image, neither received the mark in their foreheads or upon their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that is part of the first resurrection. On such the second death, that's the lake of fire death, by the way, has no power, but they shall be priests with God in Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan will be loosed out of his prison. That's what it says. That's every time it mentions the thousand years, which we relate to millennium. Six references to this thousand years in the apocalyptic book called Revelation. And it is a standard doctrine assumed by millions of Christians. Okay, understandably so when you read that, it sounds like, okay, it's, it's pretty plain when you're reading it. Many scholars see this period of time predicted in the Old Testament. And there's passages that say things like in Isaiah, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid and the calf with the young lion and the fatling together and the little child shall lead them. In Isaiah 65, 25, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock and the dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, say the Lord. And Hosea 2:18, which says again in very symbolic language, and in a day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven and with creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword and the battle of the earth and I will make them lie down safely. So taking those images, the Jehovah's Witnesses create these, these picture books and they're very inviting and they take that literally and they put that in literally and they act like this is a literal thing we're looking for. And that's what we do when we're reading the book of Revelation in the same way. Uh, now, the idea of a thousand years of actual peace was around in the early church where Jesus would reign. Every time you read a thousand years in Revelation, it's pronounced there in the Greek, Kilioi. It's called Kilioi, and Kilia, Kilia, Kiliasm is 
this belief that Jesus will come and reign for a thousand years. Some early church fathers, as early as the second century, including Irenaeus and Justin Martyr, were termed Killianists. Interestingly enough, there is documentation that there was Jews that were Killius 200 years before Christ was born. So the idea of a thousand year reign has been around a long time, Killianism. When some early Christians began to incorporate Killiism into Christianity, it was condemned by many as selectively using some scripture to establish a whole premise while avoiding others. For instance, let me give you an example. Luke 1.33 says that the, that the kingdom of God would have no end, okay? And would certainly not be limited to a thousand years. Killianism says no, it's a thousand year reign. So that is what the millennium is interpreted as. And Killianism is, is selectively picking scriptures to support yourself, but it doesn't look at other scriptures which contradict it. In the fourth century, Killianism regains some popularity. Once again, it was utterly condemned by a church council at Augsburg. Again, in the 16th century, one of my favorite Christian characters, John Calvin, I say that, uh, that tongue-in-cheek, he condemned the teaching in Institutes 3.25.5. He condemned Killianism and described the Killius as believers who limited the reign of Christ to a thousand years. Now, I understand most millennialists today do not limit the reign of Christ to a thousand years. But that is an example of what can happen when we will take selectively difficult to understand passages, apply them literally to our understanding, and say this is what the truth is and let's wait for it. Okay, without looking at anything out. The major problem I have with the emphasis on millennialism begins with how we understand biblical language in the first place, especially language that is contained in the extremely esoteric book of Revelation. If you go with me to the very first verse of Revelation, you're going to learn something maybe. I learned it. This is a really important phrase here, and it's often overlooked. This is what John says, okay? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, listen to this, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. What that says is it was an angel that came for Christ and he signified and sent this angel to teach John. Now, that line, he sent and signified it by an angel unto the servant John, is important because from the Greek, eshmanin, it means that this angel did everything through symbols, tokens, signs, all these signs it was through those that he taught John what Christ wanted him to know. That's how we get the book of Revelation.
All right. Sorry, mic out. All right. Um, I would suppose that God communicating through his angel taught John through these signs and symbols due to the very nature of the book's origins. We have to be extremely careful um, when we go about interpreting what those symbols actually mean. It's really easy to take selected passages of scripture or a series of scripture, translate them through these wooden models or through um, uh, uh, just to make things make sense and fit, right? Since a term a thousand years is only used in three places outside of these verses in chapter 20 of Revelation, it's found in Psalms 90:40, Ecclesiastes 6:6, and 2 Peter 3:8, which I'm going to cover in a minute. I think it's really important that we get a sound understanding of what a thousand years, how it's used in Scripture. Okay? First of all, we know that numbers are very symbolic in Scripture, especially in apocalyptic revelation. When it comes to the term thousand, we need to know, listen to me, when the term thousand is used in Scripture by the Jews, it's used to represent the maximum number, the total number for the Hebrew writer. It does not mean a thousand. It can mean 10 billion. It can mean 900. It can mean whatever. But a thousand means the total number. That's what it means. In, in America, we might say a jillion. It's going to take a jillion years for this to happen. Instead of using jillion, they said thousand. And that's what the word meant when they would describe it. Let me give you an example. In, in Psalm 50.10, it says, For every beast of the forest is mine, God says this, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. Okay? Are there more than a thousand hills in this world? Yes. So are only the cattle on the thousand hills gods? Or are all the cattle on all the hills gods? That's right, they all are. Thousand represents the total number of something. They, they didn't, they, they, they just picked thousand. They could have said, con, con took a trillion jillion years and tried to, or give the exact number, but they didn't have it. So they used thousand to represent the total amount of something. Zealous Bible literalists would probably claim that we have to take this literally. You know, if you know a Bible literalist who says every word is literal, bring that one to them and say, is that literal? No, because thousand does not mean a thousand there, the number one thousand. Um, but the line, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, means all the uh, hills and all the cattle on all of those hills. Christ shall reign for a thousand years does not mean that Christ's kingdom has a limited time. Thousand is the whole time. It's the whole amount. Quite the contrary. His kingdom will exist in numbers that were never meant to be counted. That's why the Jews use that phrase. To us, we would say a jillion. They said a thousand. When we read language like Isaiah that describes the time when the lamb and the wolf will lay down together and we assign it to this thousand year period, we are being literalists when we, and we lose the idea that 
there is comparisons going on in scripture and that that idea of a lamb and a lion laying down means he, the king of peace is bringing that to people's hearts. The thousand year, it means his entire reign and it started after the destruction of Jerusalem. The reign began actually before. Literalists, like the guys who made those magazines I mentioned, love to paint these expressions literally and use them to describe a future utopia, to make everybody look to the utopia and take their mind off themselves today, their problems, the world around them. Let's look to the utopia, the thousand years where the lamb and tell stories to our kids. And that is not what the scripture means. I don't believe, and many don't. I think that in, it, it, these things are word pictures to denote the difference that Christ makes under the new covenant in people's lives and in societies, that lions and lambs will be together because of Christ and his reign over this kingdom that he established. Rather than fantasizing about some kind of Christianized utopia to come, we have to remember that Christ prayed to the Father. Remember, he said to the Father that his, who his were, would not be taken out of this world but that we would simply be distinct from this world. He prayed, don't, I pray you don't take them out of this world. That's Christ's prayer for his believers, that we're here, we live. The parables of the kingdom teach advancement of the kingdom through prayer and preaching and persuasion, which have occurred over the past 2,000 years, and they're going to continue on for who knows how much longer, maybe forever. It's going to continue, and his kingdom gets bigger and bigger every time someone comes to know the Lord. The millennium will not be a future 1,000-year utopia, but a present timeless reality where Christ rules and reigns in the hearts of people from his throne on high. There's no need to wait for a millennium for Christ to reign. He's already doing it in our hearts. We allow him or we don't. That's his kingdom, spiritual. Okay, interestingly enough, really quickly, Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 8 something, he says, Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now, people forget that last line. They read the first one, that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years. I used to do that. I used to encourage people with that line. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, forget about time and measurement. The second line of this just wipes out the first. He says, one day is as a thousand years to the Lord. And then he switches it and he says, a thousand years is like a day. In other words, stop talking about time with God. It's, there's no, it doesn't matter. You can't have a thousand years be as a day to him and then a day be as a thousand years. They break each other up. We never read that second line. And so when it comes to time, this is what he's saying. Thousand years represents just the whole thing. Okay? The 144,000 question. Revelation chapter 6 talks about seven sealed scroll. Okay? The first six sealed scrolls are opened, and then the author inserts this period of time where there is peace, a gracious period of time, before the seventh seal is opened. This interlude is described in Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. And it provides a period of rest between the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth seal. And then the seventh, there's a period of rest. 
It's in this period of rest, this interlude, we read about four angels who are held back from the winds and they defer destruction of the four destroying horsemen. Another angel appears and commands, do not harm the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God in their foreheads. Okay? So we have the six seals opened, then we have a, a respite, a period of peace, and the angel says, don't destroy any of this until the, we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And uh, this is what the writer says in Revelation, and I heard the number of them which were sealed, and they were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Okay? Now, of course, this passage is fodder for every eschatological position out there. Who are these 144,000? I would first suggest that the space of peace between the sixth and seventh seal serves as an angelic interruption that pauses God's judgment on Israel. It was a period of time where there was a time that escape could be had. The pause is not so that God could help those who were being destroyed in, in Jerusalem. It was a period or gap or space where God allowed Jewish Christians to flee from Jerusalem while Vespasian is attending to other matters, the death of Nero and Rome's civil wars, Vespasian had to turn and go and give attention to that, and it gave a period of peace between the sixth and seventh seal for there to be escape. You got all that? Josephus wrote in, uh, in um, Josephus 492, 4.11.5, you can look it up, J.W. Josephus, Jewish Wars. He wrote... Um, he uh, supported the fact that there was a pause in military operations, okay? Um, so, and when the pause came, the sealed Christians trapped in Jerusalem had the opportunity to flee. Guess the number of the Christians that escaped. We don't know. We don't know. But the number of 12, as in 12 tribes, squared... Uh, and this times the symbolic number of a thousand in scripture, symbolic number of a thousand times 12 squared totals 144,000. We know when it comes to the 144,000, scripture supports that it relates to the house of Israel. First, that's Revelation 7, 4, 8. John calls the 144,000 the first fruits meaning they were the first fruits of Christ's church, the 144,000. That Christianity's first converts were to come from Israel, the true remnant. We know that they are distinguished from John, uh, by John from the great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. And we know that the Old Testament source that John draws from is Ezekiel 9.4, which clearly specifies that this was going to happen from Jerusalem. This is what it says, Ezekiel 9.4, The Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations being committed in the midst. 
It's totally Jerusalem. Put the mark on that. It doesn't mean they're going to have a 666 on their head. or They wouldn't have that mark. It doesn't mean they're going to have that any kind of strange mark like that. It's a mark for the angels, the destroying angels to see. These are the elect. Let them escape. And that God protects them in the land which is being judged, Revelation 7 and 14. And it fits with Jesus telling his followers to flee Jerusalem before its overthrow and that those who are his would be protected. That's Matthew 24. Finally, the book of Revelation says, both at the beginning and end of the book, that the events are going to come about shortly, uh, 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 including the saving of the significantly symbolic 144,000 who were Christian Jews escaping Jerusalem's destruction between the sixth and seventh seal. It's very easy when you apply the contents of the book to what was happening right there and not try to interpret it and bring it out, 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 out endlessly to our day and age. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. When we come back, we have emails, we have a call, we have a question on the board. Hit it. Hit. Hey, um, listen, great way to learn the Word of God, uh, Word of God set to music. Uh, Seth and I are going to do something right now. Seth, pick it up. All right, this is our website, and uh, I guess we're a little delayed right now. We're going to talk to you about the deal that's coming up. See special deal right there? See that emblem? What we're going to do is we want to offer you where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face, 600-plus pages, comparative between A to Z of uh, topics where you can see what the LDS believe and what the Bible teaches. Next book, I Was a Born-Again Mormon. That's the book that kind of started it all. Next book, If My Kingdom Rose of This World, Then My Servants Were Fight. That's my personal favorite that many people don't like. <laughs> and then we're going to offer Shield of Faith by Brandon Peterson, officer of the law here in Utah. He's a Christian. It's a great book, especially if you're in uh, uh, the law enforcement or something like that, where you're dealing with life and death all the time. Next, in his words one, in his words two, in his words three, and in his words four, also available in this package deal, plus the newest book that we're coming out this spring titled Giving God a Chance to Make Sense, retails $9.99, all of it. The total price is $105, $105 if you bought it retail. We want to give it to you uh, for the price to your door of $59, $59, that's almost half the difference. 
uh, we want to give you that offer. So order now, and Derek and Danita will box up like little elves and get that all packaged up and send it out to you, and we hope you'll take advantage of it. Uh, we have a comment off the air. Sean, if, if you believe that Christ has already come, what about Acts 1, 9 and 11, where the angels were standing with the disciples and said, why do you look up for this same Jesus will return the same way you saw him go to heaven? Well, I absolutely agree with that passage. I think it's true. The disciples watched him ascend. And the angel said, why are you staring up into heaven? The same Jesus is going to return in the same way. Jesus said in Matthew 24, he was going to return in the clouds, right? And so we covered this in Matthew 24, probably the first or second show that's covering when does the Bible say Jesus returned and how it's, it's uh, metaphorical language, him coming in the clouds and how we have secular history that talks about uh, 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 people seeing horses and and warriors riding through the skies uh, you have to go back and watch those shows i can't retain that all that stuff but we showed how uh, it was fulfilled so the angel said that jesus who ascended up he's coming back your question must be kind of inferring that he hasn't returned in the clouds yet i'm suggesting he did and it was in 70 a.d to bring judgment upon the uh house of israel okay uh Phone lines, 801-590-8413, This is troubling, and, and I'm, uh, you're going to see me address an LDS issue. Receiving a testimony of light and truth, President Dieter F. Uchtdorf, he's uh, an LDS uh, first presidency. He gave a speech in the recent LDS conference. And uh, fine and good, you want to go to the LDS conference and listen to the speeches, be my guest, because there's people going to uh, churches and picking up snakes and telling them, pretending to bite them. So whatever you guys want to do, go ahead. But this is the thing that troubles me. He quotes 1 Corinthians 1.18. This is what that passage says in the Bible. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. You got that? President Uchtdorf said, quote, This is why Paul was so insistent that the message of the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. But unto those who are saved, it is the power of God. In their general conference, President Uchtdorf, quoting 1 Corinthians 1.8, rewrote it. He took out the preaching of the cross and he said the message of the gospel. That's a completely different uh, message. And if he said, listen, I have uh, altered the Bible to suit my purposes, fine. But he didn't. And so he gets called on it because that's the word of God that he just changed. And he took a very important symbol that the Bible uses throughout the cross which is metonymically used. It means it represents more than just a wooden stake that people die on. Metonymically, the cross represents what God did to save the world and how the shed blood and suffering reaches out to all who believe. 
it's a it's a symbol like Washington when we say oh I wish Washington would get off their duff and fix our taxes Washington is metonymical for government well the cross is metonymical for everything he changed it. he took the cross out he called it the message of the gospel uh, 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 it's really unfortunate I hope things like that begin to change when when uh, they get called on stuff like that okay we have some uh, comments from distinctives someone was asking about the distinctives of um, what we're all about now I'll tell you what our distinctives are this is what makes part of the matter and the positions that I talk about unique compared to what you might hear at other churches Christian churches or you might hear the same thing first of all my view of Scripture I think the Bible is the Word of God I think it's a grand story applicable to all spiritually that specifically deals with a very narrow segment of people physically. The Bible, in terms of its geographical footprint on this world, I mean, I know the nation of Israel and all the arguments over land and stuff, but we're talking about a fairly small place relative to the rest of the world. And the stories that went on there are all pretty closely located. And they physically were played out among those people. That is their physical, literal book, okay? And for us, it is not a literal book. It is a spiritual book. We know it by the Spirit. We apply it through our spirits. The physical was done when Jesus came in through judgment on Jerusalem. It's now a spiritual book. And so it has universal application. The value for us today is reading it. We grow in faith. That's what Romans 10 says. And it get, guides us spiritually and helps us with problems, and it works hand-in-hand hand with the Holy Spirit. But it's not a literal book that we take and we literally apply everything that it says. Otherwise, we'd start doing polygamy. I mean, we go to the Old Testament, apply it literally. We'd start doing all sorts of stuff, making sure that uh, widows were washing saints' feet and making sure that women never spoke in church. We would take all the stuff. That's not what it's for. It's a spiritual book, fully inspired, love it, read it, study it every day. The next thing that makes this unique is I believe Christianity is completely subjective. It's a, it's a subjective experience between the individual and God. If an individual says, I follow Jesus and I believe and trust in him, I'm done. If they want to go to the LDS church, the Jehovah's Witness, they want to come to campus, they want to go to Calvary Chapel, they want to go to a mega church, they want to go to a name it and claim it, do what the heck you want. The Holy Spirit is guiding you. You do and you follow him. You follow it. You do what you are going to do through God and you will be held responsible. And you will express your faith in the ways that you choose to express your faith. And when you die, you'll go before God and you'll be held accountable for the, what, what you did and what you believed. I do not believe doctrine saves anybody. I think you can have distinct weird doctrines out there and they're all over the place. They're here in campus. Some people say the weirdest doctrines are at campus. Whatever. But doctrines don't save. Jesus saved. And so that's a major difference between us and our former television programs where I was on the LDS for all their doctrinal stuff. Now I've seen the same doctrinal issues in our own house. Doctrine doesn't do it. It's love. It's faith on Christ. And that love manifested to each other. That's a difference. Trinitarianism is a difference. I think it's a man-made construct. Uh, uh, and I don't want to go into it. It's a huge topic, but I don't stand on Trinitarianism. 
Uh, Jesus returned in 78 AD to the house of Israel. I believe that. That's a preterist view. Many uh, people aren't preterists. They're futurists, waiting for him to come. Uh, I don't believe punishment in hell and the lake of fire is eternal. And after next week, we're going to do a, a four or five week thing on that topic. We're going to talk about how the Bible says hell, lake of fire, punishment, not eternal. Now, um, I want you to understand so that just quickly, I used to embrace the eternality of hell and had no problem with it. I talked about it on the show for years and people calling, yeah, hell's eternal. You know, and, and I believe that because that's what I believed I was taught. But further uh, scripture and looking at the Greek and all kinds of other things proves to me that it's not. And so I'm going to preach what I believe. And so, but it's not because I have a problem with the idea that God would put people in hell forever. I have a problem with that if it doesn't stand philosophically with the rest of the Bible. And so that's why I make that stance. And the people who come to campus or who watch the shows, they don't agree with me on many of these things. Maybe all of them, to tell you the truth. Uh, also, there's a vast difference, in my opinion, between somebody who has been saved and somebody who is a son or daughter of God. And uh, Scripture will help articulate that. I think salvation is one experience. I think becoming a son and daughter is something entirely different. How that's teased apart, we'll get into it with Scripture and the shows to come. And at the end of the day, uh, it's, it, th those are the main things how I either differ or don't stand shoulder to shoulder with many of the other churches. We're going to Levon in Birmingham, Alabama. Levon, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, hello, Brother Sean. How are you? Good. How you doing? Okay. Hey, uh, because of some technical challenges, I'm not sure if I, if you've covered the subject or not yet, but... Um, whether it be from 70 A.D., uh, a thousand years later, or from 70 A.D., 2014 years later, uh, my thing is, uh, if for anybody to believe that, say, uh, that some sort of entity called Satan, a physical form or whatever, was literally bound to have no more influence on men for either a thousand or two thousand fourteen years uh, is ludicrous. It's, it's delusional to think that Satan is actually bound, or is bound right now, and is going to be loose again. And why? What in God's Bolima will would make him want to lose something so evil again? I don't know. I don't know, and I'm not. I'm not real clear, Levon, on the the binding of Satan. And I know that's a that's a weak link in my stance. And I have, to, I have to bone up on that through Scripture. I haven't had time. I will, though, because I know that question is going to come. But I don't understand it fully. Well, thank you. Thank you, because I'm thinking, uh, I, I just don't buy it that Satan has been bound since 70 A.D., you no. know, yeah. pretty length of time. And what, 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 you know, okay, your premise about God letting people out of hell, I guess maybe he still loves Satan and would let him out of hell. I don't or know. something of that effect. I, uh, otherwise, it may, you know, the whole premise of, of God is love without responsibility, that don't float with that scenario because it wouldn't, doesn't sound like me would be responsible. It would be love, but it sure don't sound like it would be responsible to let him out again. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, LaVon, the problem with Satan and being let out and all that and not, no eternal punishment is that Satan is not a human. Satan was in God's presence when he rebelled. We, we are humans. We're a different uh, economy of species. In right. Yeah, so I don't, I don't, everyone brings that up when we start talking about eternality of punishment. Well, does God let Satan out too? But 
we're talking about a completely different species. So I, yeah. I, I, that one I'm not sure on either. Well, I, you know, I, I take that for what it's worth, and it's worth a lot. And I, I appreciate your honesty on that. All right, my brother. Thanks for watching. Yeah, have a good night. You too. Bye. Hi, Sean. Since the 144,000 have been already chosen, was the great crowd already judged? What about us? Where will we go? Straight to the judgment? Good question, Eric. Here's the deal. The 144,000 were the Christian Jews who escaped out of Jerusalem. The great crowd were the ones who were being judged at that time. So what about us? We go through the same thing, but it's individual and spiritual now. We individually, we die, we experience the same judgment on Jerusalem. We either escape to heaven or we are destroyed and go to hell. And, and so the picture is perfect for that. Where will we go? Straight to the judgment? No, we will do the same thing. The same thing that happens. So I, I hope that that's kind of sinking in. You have to repeat things over and over and over again. It's not that the, the, the Bible is a spiritual book to us. So all the principles are applicable. Every single one of them are applicable to us. All the lessons, all the principles, but just not physically anymore. Now we assign them to ourselves spiritually. So where they were doing, uh, they were doing uh, communions and they were doing these, all these different things and we had a physical return of Christ, pouring physical judgment upon Jerusalem, I think that's done. And I think the judgment now is all spiritual and we will experience our rapture and our second coming spiritually when we die. Just as everybody who have ever died experience it. Let me ask you this. Yesterday, a man dies. He's been a Christian since 1932. He died of a heart attack. What does the second coming mean to him? It doesn't mean anything except the fact he's experiencing his second coming now. And that's how it's going to keep rolling forward. And that's how the earth continues to abide. And it's not going to be destroyed as we covered. I realize it goes counter to everything that everybody talks about and wants to believe. So uh, somebody said to me the other day, you know, we have all these blood moon things going on. And someone said the year, I think it was 2015, the final blood moon. And then we're supposed to have something big. I said, what date is it? And they told me, I can't remember it. And I said, I tell you what, I'm going to be here on that date. And when it passes, come on over and we'll go to dinner and you're buying. Because I guarantee you we're going to be here after that date. What? No way. You watch. Just watch. So... We'll see. We'll see who's right. All right. Listen, um, Thomas writes, how do we know that Christ, God's gift of grace is for all and not just the Jews? I've had other really astute Christians who have really understood that what we're talking about here say, you know, the more I look at the Bible, isn't it just wasn't it just a record of the Jews? How do we know it applies to us at all? Has God just given up on us? No, he hasn't given up on us. His son came and he gave his life for us. How do we know it's for us? Because Paul was sent to the Gentiles. He was sent to the pagans. The gospel's still going out, still going forward. Christ bringing people to him, giving them freedom from the prison, of, uh, uh, prison and chains of sin, giving us reprieve. Uh, and so uh, it, it has complete application to us. But physically, it had complete application to the Jews. In that little segment of the world, that little footprint, that's their history. That's what we got from it. Praise God that we have it. And we read it and we study it and we grow by it. But it has nothing to do with us in the physical sense. 
uh, in my opinion. And if I'm wrong, God forgive me. But if I'm right, take advantage of it because it changes your view of what we're doing, how we live, how we treat other people, how we treat other people in church especially, what the church is really for. All those things come up when you start to see it in a different way, that kind of a preterist, uh, it's been fulfilled way. Uh, I'm not going to read that one. Let me see here. we got a couple minutes left. Oh, uh, Sean, this is from James on show 414, part 9. You quote that the only thing that came true in the list of the end time prophecies was what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 28. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste of death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I said that's the only true prophecy I read of all those prophecies I read that night. Uh, in one way, I guess you could think that Jesus must have had his second coming before those he was speaking to had died. That's how I see it. But he says, when I read it, I can't help but wonder, was Jesus talking about his ascension into heaven? And before they died, they would see that happen, that, that, that his ascension into heaven was his entering into his uh, coming into his kingdom. Okay. Um, Going to his father, which is what he did at the ascension, is very different in scripture than coming into his kingdom. And they, uh, I think they would have said, and at his ascension, he was coming into the, he was coming to the father. But that's the wrong tense. It's the wrong way to say it. Going to the father, coming to the kingdom. He came to earth. He goes to heaven. Scripture is pretty consistent through the New Testament in describing Jesus in those ways. You're kind of supposing that going to his father was really coming into his kingdom. And I think that might be an inferior way to examine it. Uh, you have to decide for yourself, but that's my opinion of it. I think we're running out here of time and uh, we appreciate you. We have some really interesting things happening here in the state of Utah with the ministry. And we uh, pray that your prayers will be with us as we try to decipher uh, what's happening and how we proceed. We pray that God's spirit will be upon us as we move forward in these endeavors. We love you guys. Thanks for hanging with us. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the And I won't be coming out, I'm going in. This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred.